Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Uh, Genesis 7, 1 through 16 will be our sermon text uh, for this morning. And before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word again this morning and we come to hear from you. Uh, we come to hear from the scriptures. We come to hear whatever you would have to say to us this morning. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the depth of it, the richness of it, the breadth of it. We thank you uh, for every book that you have placed in the Bible. And yet we thank you as well for the singular message of your son, our Savior Jesus. And we pray that as we come to this text, we would hear what it has to say to us and that particularly we would see Jesus, and we would see Jesus in all of his glory. And we pray that you would remind us afresh of the work of our Savior, uh, cause us to rest in and rejoice in that work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 7, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights." On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life." And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Not many people like finals week. Now, I know it's summer, and if you're a student, you don't want to hear about finals week right now. Uh, but finals week has an important theological truth tucked into it that judgment day always comes. In life, there comes a time when your work is inspected, your actions are assessed, and your labor is rewarded or punished. And this is true in school. Uh, it's true in the workplace. It's true in life. There is just a, a natural order of things. Our work, in the end, uh, always is seen for what it is. 
In the final analysis, we don't fool anybody. And this is especially true with God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the story of the flood is a story of judgment day coming. And yet it's also a story of mercy. Mercy in the midst of judgment and salvation through obedience. Uh, We are saved through obedience, by the way. We're just not saved by our obedience, but by the obedience of Christ. And Noah here is a picture, a picture of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who obeys and so delivers us from the judgment to come. You may remember the story of the flood from uh, children's books, but there may have been a few details left out. Uh, God... uh, created humanity good in Genesis 1 and 2. The whole world was very good, God said. But human beings went their own way in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And what follows in Genesis 4 and 5 and 6 is a a downward spiral. When we get to Genesis chapter 6, God's assessment of humanity is bleak. He sees that Quote, every intention of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's in Genesis 6, verse 5. And this grieves the heart of God in verses 6 and 7, and understandably so. The reason for God's grief becomes more clear as we move to verse 11 in chapter 6, which says that the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was filled with violence. And here's the way that we ought to read this. The earth was corrupt, meaning it was ruined. Humanity had destroyed God's good world. How did they do that? Well, rather than filling the earth with the image of God and all of its goodness and glory, humanity had filled the earth with violence, murder, strife, abuse, oppression, everyone taking advantage of everyone else for their own good and their own gain. Even the animals had been corrupted, according to the text. Perhaps through the cruelty of people, the animals themselves had become wild and dangerous and savage and vicious. Rather than ruling the animals and fostering a world of peace and harmony, humanity had mistreated one another and the animals and fostered a world of conflict and discord. The world was a complete mess. Ruined is God's verdict. And so God said, enough is enough. Uh, In chapter 6, verse 13, God says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And here's what we need to understand as we come to this text. Uh, God could have, at this point, scrapped the whole plan. Humanity had turned to oppression and violence. The earth itself was was in a state of ruin. Uh, God could have decided just to flatten the earth, toss, toss it aside, and start over with life on Mars. Meaning... God didn't owe us anything. He is the creator. We are his creation. He is righteous. We are rebellious. Uh, He is pure. We were defiled. He made the world good. We made it a mess. And God could have legitimately, justly scrapped the whole thing. And this is important to, to recognize as we move forward because any other plan then is undeserved. Any other plan is sheer grace. 
we often come to stories of judgment in the Bible, and our first thought is, how could he? Right? How could God possibly do this thing? As if God should have done otherwise. Which, of course, begs the question, whose standard of justice do we want imposed here? But, but in light of God as the righteous creator, we need to see that God didn't owe us anything. Or to put it differently, actually, the one thing God did owe us was judgment. When injustice happens, the role of the judge is to, to right the wrong, not to let it go, not to pass it by, not to ignore it. To say how could he fails to do justice to the injustice in the world at the time. But God is just. He, he wants to right wrongs. And yet God is also merciful. And so he forms a plan to save humanity from their just end. God chooses to show mercy. At first, God sets a day. Uh, we saw this in a previous text, 120 years before judgment would come, giving people time to repent. And then he chooses a man, Noah, because Noah alone is righteous in the earth. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8 told us that Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of God, it, but it was a transforming grace because chapter 6, verse 9 tells us that Noah was righteous, a blameless man in his generation. And then our text in chapter 7, verse 1, puts it this way. Uh, then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You see, in Genesis 1, God sees that the earth is good. Uh, in Genesis 6, God sees that the earth is ruined, filled with violence. But now, in Genesis 7, God sees that Noah was a righteous man in the earth. He has Noah build an ark in, in chapter 6, verse 14, uh, an immense box, essentially, in which God will preserve a remnant on the earth. And Noah is to take some of all the animals into the ark, two of every animal, a male and a female, to preserve the animals along with humanity. After the ark is finished, finished uh, God says in 7, 1, get in. Uh, in seven days, I will send the flood. And so again, we have this appointed day, seven days, and Noah obeys God, and he and all the animals, they get on the ark, and on that very day, uh, on the very day that they finish boarding, the rains come. What are we to make of this story? Well, I, I, there, there are three points that I want to make, but there, there's actually a preliminary point I, I want to make before I get to those three points. So I guess there are four points I want to make. Uh, but the, the preliminary point is actually uh, about the, the flood story and what is called source criticism. Uh, some of your eyes may glaze over for a minute, but uh, just, just hear me out. Um, source criticism is the idea that the books of Moses, including Genesis, were made from multiple sources. Uh, typically, uh, there are seen to be at least four. Uh, they're sometimes called J, E, D, and P, uh, though it varies. Um, J stands for the Yahwist. E for the Elohist, P for the priestly, D for the Deuteronomist. And the idea is, in source criticism, that you can kind of pick apart Genesis, for example, and show this part is from this source and this part is from another source and so on. And, and often the different parts are actually seen as contradictory, uh, thereby undermining uh, the integrity and the inerrancy of God's word. And the flood story is often seen as a classic example of the validity of source criticism. Uh, there are different names for God used throughout the story, which source critics see as a sign of different authors. Uh, and there's an ample repetition, and the source critics ascribe that repetition to multiple sources being used. And yet the, the, the weakness of this view 
on the other hand, is actually demonstrated in the flood story. Uh, there, there are other and better explanations for these phenomena. Uh, the different vocabulary, for example, including the different names for God, uh, rather than being evidence of different authors, can be explained in other ways. So Elohim, which is the generic name for God, has been shown uh, to particularly refer to God as the creator and sustainer of all. In this sense, he is simply God, the God. Yahweh, on the other hand, which is the proper name for God, uh, shows God as the, the God of the covenant, right? the God of his people, the, the faithful God, the one who keeps his promises. And so Elohim tends to be used in passages which refer to God as God over all, and Yahweh tends to be used in passages which refer to God's particular relationship with his people. And yet in the flood story, it moves back and forth. Uh, but that makes sense, doesn't it? Because uh, the flood story affects all of God's creation, and yet it is the Lord, Yahweh, who preserves his people. In fact, there is one verse that uses both uh, Elohim and Yahweh, uh, which forces the source critics to do kind of gymnastics to try to explain the obvious, or explain away the obvious, that the writer is using different names for God for different purposes at different times. Uh, just as you or I might switch back and forth between someone's title and their proper name, depending on which is called for in the moment. We do that all the time. Uh, repetition, as well, uh, has its purpose in Hebrew writing. Uh, in fact, Hebrew poetry is actually built on the idea of repetition. Read any psalm, and you'll see that every other line is somehow repetitive of the former line. Uh, but even Hebrew narrative employs repetition regularly. Uh, one example is later in Genesis, we'll see in the story of finding a bride for Isaac, the story is repeated four times, uh, four times. And uh, first, someone prays for certain events to come about. Uh, second, the events come about just as they were prayed. And finally, both the prayer and the events are recounted to a third party. And, and that third party gives the interpretation, right, this is from the Lord, right? Meaning the repetition is purposeful. It, it shows God's faithful answer to the prayers of his people. Well, in our text this morning, the events of the last seven days before the flood are repeated three times. Uh, but it's not a bare repetition, First, there is the command to get on the ark, Noah and his family and the animals in verses 1 through 5. Then Noah obeys, and they get on the ark, Noah and his family and the animals, verses 6 through 9. And then we are told that the rain began, verses 10 through 16, on the very same day that Noah and his family and the animals got on the ark. There is repetition, but, but there is progression as well. The, the, the story is still moving forward through the repetition, uh, you can think of it a bit like a, a tense scene in a movie. Uh, you know, there are some kids doing something they shouldn't be doing, uh, something they're not supposed to do, and then the, the, the scene switches to their parents slowly heading toward the bedroom. And then it goes back to the kids doing whatever they're not supposed to do and back to the parents heading toward the bedroom, right? And the moving back and forth is not meaningless repetition. It builds tension in the story. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. We're moving toward the destruction of the whole earth, and tension is being built as we move back and forth between Noah obeying God and the floodwaters coming on the earth. Really, interestingly, the final nail in the coffin of the source critics' take on the flood story is actually other ancient Near Eastern flood stories. You know, in ancient Mesopotamia, there were multiple parallel flood stories, and those stories included many of the same basic elements found in the Genesis account. They, they weren't exactly the same. There were significant differences as well, but, but they had the same basic 
outline. But when you pick apart the Genesis flood story, as the source critics do, into a J story and a P story, you end up with two stories that are only half complete, according to other ancient Near Eastern accounts. Now, ancient Near Eastern scholars will tell you that the relationship between the Genesis story and the Mesopotamian can be explained in one of two ways. Either they both go back to a common, most likely oral tradition, which of course makes sense if there was a real historical flood, right, that there would be this story in the world at the time, or that Moses is deliberately rewriting the Mesopotamian story. That is, Moses is saying, let me correct what you've heard. Uh, This is the way it really happened. But either way, Uh, the the writer of Genesis would have had the full story at his disposal, either through the common oral history or through the Mesopotamian writings in which he was correcting. And as one commentator put it, it it is therefore strange that both the, the J and the P versions should lack features of the common tradition, but when combined, create an account which resembles it. It seems more probable, the commentator goes on, that if Moses used a source, it would have included the whole story, a story common in the ancient Near East. You see, it makes no sense that he would have used two supposedly contradictory stories that when combined just happened to make a story strikingly similar to that told in the Mesopotamian flood stories. So what we actually have here is a single story which holds together in which God is telling us here is what actually happened in the flood. The question then for us is what are we to make of this story? And so let's look at our text then under three headings, uh, the 40 days, the open door, and the closed door. First, the 40 days. You know, it's, it's always been tempting uh, for people to allegorize the ark, uh, as in the ark is the church or the ark is Christ. Uh, now, nowadays, people are more likely to reject allegory and, and so reject any association to Christ or the church, but there is actually a, a third way here different way of looking at the story, and and that's through an understanding. I'm going to give you another technical word. Sorry, I keep going on technical words this morning, but typology, right? Typology is sometimes associated with allegory, but they're quite different. Uh, In allegory, I read this text in light of later things so that the the wood of the ark is the wood of the cross, some would say, uh, which brings us safely through judgment. Of course, there's nothing uh, in the text to make that connection between the wood of the ark and the wood of the cross. Uh, Typology, on the other hand, reads the symbolism in the text in that time and in that place and then applies it forward to later things. Not reading something back into the text, not reading the text in light of later things, uh, but reading later things in light of the text. And so here, for example, we see that by Noah's obedience, the ark was made a place of safety and security from God's judgment. We read that in the text. Well, by Christ's obedience the church was made a place of safety and security from the coming judgment, right? There's a thematic connection, an echo of sorts. Or again, because of Noah's righteousness, he and his children were invited into the ark. Because of Christ's righteousness, all who will may come and enter into safety and security in him. Because of Noah's righteousness, even the animals are saved from annihilation. Because of Christ's righteousness, we're told the whole earth is saved and remade, and there is and will be a new creation. And we're not, we're not twisting the Noah story uh, to say that something that it's not, but we are recognizing the patterns of God's work that play themselves out throughout redemptive history. Jesus himself actually draws the parallel between the judgment in Noah's day and the judgment to come. Matthew 24, Jesus says concerning the coming day of judgment, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Jesus says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. See, there's a pattern. There's a pattern that is playing itself out once again. And so I want to draw a number of parallels. I want to highlight a number of those themes, a number of those patterns. Uh, the first has to do with the 40 days. God says he is going to send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the first time the number 40 uh, comes up in Scripture, so it might be easy to overlook it if you were just starting from the beginning and reading your way through. Uh, but the number 40 actually keeps coming up throughout Scripture. Uh, I'll give you just a few examples. Isaac and Esau are both married at 40 years old. Uh, Moses spends 40 years in Egypt and then 40 years in exile before the Exodus. Israel spies out the promised land for 40 days, and then they must wander in the wilderness for 40 years for refusing to enter. One year for each day, they spied out the land. Uh, We come to the New Testament, and Jesus fasts uh, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. And after the resurrection, he appears to the disciples 40 days before the ascension, giving proof of his resurrection during that time. And so what's the symbolism uh, of this number, right? What's the symbolism of 40 days? How do all of these different stories relate to one another? Why this specific round number? Uh, Well, 40 years or 40 days uh, becomes uh, in Scripture a time of of testing, a time of proving oneself. Uh, It's possible that 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 is actually, uh, that it's therefore the the coming of age as well, the time when a, a man comes to maturity, hence having quote, proved himself, which might be why Isaac and Esau were both married at age 40. Not sure, but that is possible. Either way, it's a probationary period of testing, of proving one's self, and therefore also of judgment as the moment of truth. The 40 days and nights of rain is the beginning of that symbolism, the beginning of the the symbolism of testing, of judgment. Humanity was being weighed in the balance and found wanting. And so what do we need to to walk away with here as we think about this 40 days of testing or judgment? Uh, We need to realize, of course, that the day of judgment is coming, even for us. Uh, Christianity teaches that everyone will have to give an account for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Every secret thought will be exposed. Every word will come under scrutiny. Our hearts will be laid bare. I don't don't know about you, but I, I don't want my heart laid bare, even right now, before all of you, much less do I want it laid bare before God on the day of judgment. And our lives here and now will be the evidence brought against us on the last day. We right now are are in that time of probation, as it were. How we respond when life happens, when difficulties arise, when things don't go our way, that shows our hearts. The the problem is, in light of God's assessment of humanity in Genesis chapter 6, is that every intention of the thoughts of the human heart is only evil all the time. Now, uh, this week, some people rejoiced uh, at Derek Chauvin's sentencing. Others think it was too lenient. Uh, and here's what we need to realize. Whatever you think, whatever you think, that, here's what we need to know. Our hearts are fundamentally no different. We all stand guilty before the Father. We all face not the imperfect justice of this age, but the perfect justice of God, the just judge of all the earth. Again, our response to judgment, whether the judgments of God in Scripture or the imperfect justice of this age must always be, this is what we deserve. Who can pass through judgment safely? Will anyone make it through the flood? 
Or will the 40 days mean an end to the human race? That's the question as we come to Genesis 7. Will anyone make it through the flood? Which brings us to our second point, the open door. Whenever some trial or difficulty comes, one of our first questions is to ask, how will I make it through this? When it comes to the final judgment, the answer, of course, is you can't. You can't, at least not in your own strength. But God has provided a way. God says in chapter 7, verse 1, go into the ark. And verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth. God had Noah build the ark with a door in its side, and the door was now open. And Noah and his passengers were to enter. See, after a period of grace, 120 years, they were invited in to this place of safety. Invited in because of Noah's righteousness, that's what we're told. Invited in as a refuge from God's coming judgment. And you can perhaps see how this relates to us today, that, that Scripture says today is the day of salvation. We are in a time of grace. Unlike the days of Noah, we, we don't know when it will end. God hasn't told us it will be 120 years or 120,000 years, yet God has set a day. Uh, scripture tells us that in Acts 17. Uh, it tells us the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given evidence to all by raising him from the dead. God has set a day for the coming judgment. This this day of grace will not last forever. Today is the day of salvation. And today God invites all people to come to Christ, who is our refuge and our place of safety. Acts 17 says God commands all people everywhere to repent, but just a few verses earlier in Acts 16.31 We're told, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Judgment day has been set. It will wipe everyone away, but there is a place of safety which God has provided. Today is the day of salvation and in which God invites us into the place of safety, into Jesus because of his righteousness. You see, God sent Jesus to bear our sin, to suffer God's wrath, to be overwhelmed by the flood of his judgment on the cross. Jesus himself did not deserve judgment. He was righteous. Not simply righteous like Noah, a a relative righteousness compared to everybody else, but a perfectly righteous person like his Father in heaven. And so Jesus bore wrath not because he deserved it. He bore wrath for us, for our sin. But because of his righteousness, he came through. He he rose from the dead, victorious over the flood. And the result is that we have hope of passing through judgment in him unto life on the other side. The coming judgment of God need not scare us, not because we are so good, but because Jesus is. And Jesus made it through and now invites us into fellowship with himself by faith so that we might come through in him. And so here's what we need to know about about this door, right? It stands open. God's invitation to you to come to Christ stands Today is the day of salvation. Come to Christ. Find safety in him, and you will pass through. It doesn't matter how great is your sin. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past, what you've said in the past, what you've believed in the past. The door through Christ stands open now. Come to Jesus and find safety in him that you might pass through the flood of God's wrath and have hope of resurrection on the other side. Don't have so small a view of God's grace that you think the door is not open for you. Your sin is never so great that it cannot be dealt with in the cross. 
And don't have such a small view of God's grace that you think that God is somehow harsh for providing only one way of salvation, salvation in Christ. See, oftentimes we want to say, well, God, why did God provide only one ark? Right? Why not 20 arks? Why not 1,000 arks? But we should be saying how great is God's love that he provided any ark at all. Again, God could have justly condemned us all, but he has provided a way of grace. Do you see how the cross then is both the ultimate evidence of the divine verdict against sin and the ultimate evidence of God's grace? God's grace was so great, he wanted to overlook sin, but human sin was so serious that God had to punish it, even if it meant punishing his only son so that we might go free. Today is the day of grace in which God invites us into a place of safety because of the righteousness of Jesus as a refuge from the coming judgment. So that's the the 40 days on the one hand and the open door on the other. Finally, the closed door. Scripture tells us uh, that Jesus alone has the the keys of David to open and to shut, that that what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Well, in Genesis 7, 16, we're told that, that once Noah and his passengers entered the ark, the Lord shut him in. The door was shut. And there are, of course, two sides to this shutting of the door, a positive and a negative. Uh, First, Noah and his crew were shut in. They were shut in for their safety. Uh, This language is used in other places in Scripture, uh, like Genesis 19, when the angels pull Lot into his house and shut the door to protect him from the unruly mob outside. Or, Or Joshua 6, where Jericho is, quote, shut up to protect them from the coming Israelite army, which, if you know the story of Jericho, doesn't work too well. And yet even the failure of those in Jericho to properly shut themselves up is telling us something. You know, in the Mesopotamian flood story, the Noah character shuts the door. He shuts himself in. But not so here, right? Here God does the shutting. God himself saves Noah and crew. He shuts and seals the door ensuring Noah's safe passage through the flood. God does the same thing to us by his Holy Spirit. Uh, The Spirit is the inward seal, the New Testament tells us, shutting us up in Christ, as it were. God uh, puts us into his Son by the work of his Spirit. God is the one who saves. Uh, Baptism is the outward seal, the sign of the Spirit's inward work. But the point is that it is God himself who seals us up and shuts us in and keeps us safe in Christ. So the Lord had shut them in. But in the same move, others have been shut out. Uh, The classic illustration of this was read earlier in the story of the ten virgins. Five were wise and ready when the bridegroom came, but five five were foolish and not ready. And when they finally came to the wedding feast late, they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus' application is to, to be ready, right? That the time of entrance will come to an end. A day will come when the door will be shut. The day of salvation will be over. The day of final judgment will be here. And Jesus warns us in that parable, watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. In other words, be ready now. Enter through the door now. The door stands open. Jesus said at one point in John 10, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheepfold. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Or John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
See, if you want to come to the Father, if you want to be saved from the judgment to come, Jesus has come to him and be saved. The door is open. The the invitation is for all who will. Come before the door is shut. Come find safety and security in Jesus. I want to give you a minute now to pray uh, like we did earlier after the confession of sin. Just a moment to pray uh, to the Father individually. You may be praying for the first time. Uh, Father, forgive my sin for Jesus' sake. Place me in Jesus, the place of refuge and safety that I might have hope in him. Or you may be praying for the thousandth time, right? Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have provided a way of grace. Once again, forgive my sin and help me to see Jesus in all his glory as the one whom you have provided, the one more righteous than Noah, given to save us from the wrath to come. So let's pray now and I will close us in just a moment. Father, forgive us for Jesus' sake. We thank you for his death on the cross for us. We thank you for the hope we have in him of the resurrection, that death does not have the final word, judgment does not have the final word, but we have the hope of rising on the last day. Father, bring us through the the flood. Bring us through uh, that we might find life on the other side in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.